This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, we've had uh, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson from the Business Initiative on, and we now have the director, Oliver Hartwich, and we're going to be talking to Oliver about a truly shocking article that he wrote. And in many ways, I think it might be the most important article written in recent years. And this is what we're going to be discussing with Oliver, because what he says needs to be said and needs to be heard. Good morning, Oliver. Good morning, Rodney. I want to uh, tease our listeners a little bit by reading your first four paragraphs. And they say this. I'm teasing them because we're not going to go straight into the article. We're just going to tease the article, and then we're going to talk about the business initiative and you. The article was originally called by Oliver, From God's Own to the Devil's Playground, which I think is a wonderful title. And Oliver says this, The world thinks of New Zealand as the land of the long white cloud. Renowned for its stunning natural beauty and resources, it is considered an island paradise, or God's own, as they used to call it. But that was a long time ago. And not just because most Kiwis have since turned their backs on organized religion. Instead, today's Instead, today's New Zealand feels like a country that has conspired to make itself poorer at every opportunity. If someone had put the devil in charge of New Zealand's politics, the outcome could hardly have been worse. That's what Oliver Hartwich writes, and he's very quick and properly so to explain this isn't attack, an attack on the present government. It's an attack on successive governments and what has happened over the years. This is what we're talking to Oliver about today. This is a very important article. Oliver, lovely to have you. Great to be with you again. Now tell me, what is the business initiative? Well, first of all, it's called the New Zealand Initiative. Oh, and it's a thing. Aren't I terrible? Yeah, aren't I the well, worst thing in the world? <gasps> as long as you don't call us the New Zealand Institute, it's okay. 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 <laughs> I won't do that. <laughs> no. Um, the New Zealand Initiative is a think tank. It is a business membership organization. What's a think tank? Well, a think tank is an organization that shouldn't actually have to exist. Because we are doing the jobs that universities used to do, that journalists used to do, that politicians used to do, that bureaucrats sometimes used to do, but no longer do. So we think. We try to come up with new ideas for public policy issues, and the idea is to make the country better. We are a business membership organization, but we are emphatically telling our members and our prospective members, this is not for you. We are not making your companies better. We're not improving your bottom line. You might benefit from what we say in the long run, but so will everybody else, because our target is actually to make this country work better. 
And that could be in making the education system work better. That could be in reforming planning and housing. That could be in improving infrastructure delivery. It could be in all those ways in which New Zealand currently doesn't perform well. That's where we are thinking. That's where we are doing our analyses. And that's where we're trying to promote them then to decision makers, to journalists, to the wider public. So the idea of a think tank is actually to improve the lot of the country. It's an idea that goes back to Britain in the 1940s and 50s. That's where the first modern day think tanks really originated. Think of the Institute of Economic Affairs. That was one of the driving forces behind Margaret Thatcher's revolution in the late 70s and early 80s. So this is the rough idea of a think tank. We are a bit unusual in that regard because we are business funded. Most think tanks actually uh, go fundraising for individual projects and they're typically funded by some high net worth individuals. In our case, our funding model is a business membership organization, but it is emphatically not a lobby group. We've got enough of them in this country and they are doing a good job and I've got no problem with lobby groups, but we are not one of them. We are actually there to make New Zealand better for all New Zealanders. And you're called the New Zealand Initiative. If I'm... um. What would be a typical business? Would it be a family-owned business, a corporate? Um, what sort of businesses typically get behind the the New Zealand initiative? I almost slipped. The New Zealand initiative. And why would they sign up? Well, we have all sorts of different businesses, but the majority of our businesses are indeed corporates. And to sign up, it's very simple. If you are a large company, you pay us $50,000 a year. If you're a medium-sized or a smaller company, the fees are reduced, but basically you get the same. You help us develop our policies, and that's why they sign up. They sign up because um, they think it is important for the country to do well, because when the country does well, all businesses in the long run will also do well. So they're doing it out of, well, for lack of a better word, a sense of corporate social responsibility. I don't actually generally like that phrase, but in this case, they are trying to invest in debates that make the country work better. Mm. And would you say that your bent is to the free market? Well, my personal bent is clearly to the free market. I consider myself a classical liberal, mm-hmm. and I would say most of my colleagues do as well. That said, we're quite a diverse team in, our, in, the, in its, itself. So we have um, a few economists working here, of course, and I think they broadly share my free market inclinations. But we also have um, a historian here, a political scientist, psychologist, so it's, it's quite an interesting, diverse team, a good team. Mm. And when you describe yourself as a classical liberal, what's that? Well, that is someone who basically believes in freedom, the power of freedom, who doesn't like the state that much, who actually believes that markets generally find better solutions, who believes in decision-making that is bottom-up and not top-down. And it is something for me actually driven out of a personal experience. I mean, you would never pick this up for my accent, of course, but I am German by birth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, really, yes. Perfect Um, Kiwi accent. Well, I've got a New Zealand passport as well. Ah, good. Anyway, I was born in 75 in West Germany, and that was a time, of course, when um, my home country was divided. So we had the perfect example, actually, of one country with one culture being divided in the middle and one half functions broadly under a free market system and the other one under communism. Then you wait 40 years and you see what happens. It was a perfect example, wasn't it? And I grew up there and I was lucky enough in 1988 to visit East Berlin just for a day, but just to see it myself. And basically that 
vaccinated me for life in that way against this communist virus because I've seen mm. it. I, I could see how terrible it was. It left a lasting impression on me. And East and Berlin was the showcase. East Berlin was the showcase. But I can tell you, actually, when I um, had that day there, I traveled with my parents and uh, we visited friends in East Berlin. Uh, the experience just going to a supermarket was shocking. Uh, mm. So one example, I mean, you had to cut um, the slices of bread, of loaves of bread yourself. Um, you know, when, when you go to a supermarket here and you see whole chicken, it typically comes neatly packaged and the wings aligned. And in East Germany, I remember the chicken had their wings in all sorts of directions in the freezer and it looked just weird. I had the weirdest watery tasting ice cream ever from a, an ice cream shop in Alexanderplatz, so another showcase square actually in the middle of town. And everything was weird and there was police on every corner and the colors were different. You come from West Berlin and everything is colorful. I mean, typical Western city. And then you go, or you went rather, to East Berlin and you saw everything was kind of beige and gray. And as I said, with surveillance on every corner, that had a lasting impact on me just seeing mm. it. So I, I did the same thing in 1981 and just a day in East Berlin, but I spent many weeks in other um, Eastern Bloc countries. But the thing that hit me in 81, was the fear. Yeah. It was absolutely. palpable. It was palpable. And I, as a kid, had grown up reading the Reader's Digest and all these terrible stories about communism, and I never believed it. And when I crossed that wall, I went across happily. And the people were scared, and they were scared of their government. And that, to me, was an inconceivable concept. And I'll never forget, it was, I was like you, this changed me forever. I'll never forget walking back and seeing the American flag at Checkpoint Charlie and holding my New Zealand passport and thinking, this is the most wonderful thing I possess because I can leave. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I know that feeling. And the feeling when the war finally came down. Yes, November, we, November we 1989. I, I was in Germany. I was in West Germany, glued to the television, of course. And um, it was something we, we didn't see coming. We didn't expect because it looked so, so final. You know, it was such a, I mean, you've seen it. Yes. it, it, it you, when you saw all the brutality of that regime and all the, fortifications around the border, you could not imagine that they would just fall overnight, but they did. And it was the most wonderful, liberating experience and one of the happiest days ever in German history. Yes. Oh, in, in the West's history. And um, the idea, inconceivable, that you'd have a wall with guns on it to keep your people in. Yes. And, uh, but, and, and to and separate German families. Indeed. And these are the tragic human costs, and um, they are absolutely terrible. But on top of that, of course, it's that economic experiment. Yes. Where you can see, actually, you have a country with one common culture, you divide it, you let it work under different systems. And after 40 years of doing that, one half produces Mercedes, probably the most luxurious car brand in the world, and the other one produces Trabant. And Trabant. I think that is probably 
a nice image. It's the difference between two economic systems in a nutshell. Yes. The other thing I found striking was actually in East Berlin, you know, in the West, we have prices that usually end with a nine because it's marketing, right? Yes. In East Germany, there were all sorts of prices. You could buy a postcard for 27 pfennigs, or you had a museum entry for one dollar, uh, one mark and 35 or 34 or whatever else it might be. And it just showed, actually, these were not market prices. There was no marketing behind it. This was just a result of a plan. So yeah. <laughs> the whole economy was planned. Nothing worked. There was fear everywhere. You really had to see it to grasp it. I mean, you can read a lot about it in history books, but unless you've seen it, you probably wouldn't fully understand what the system was. The one that struck me too, funny enough, because I couldn't speak German, and I was on my own finding my way around, is the value of advertising. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you, you can be in West Germany and you can figure out what a shop is selling. But I couldn't figure out what shops were selling or trying to sell in East Berlin because there's no advertising. It was just beer. Everything was just bleak and beer. And it felt like World War II had just ended. You know, because nothing had happened since almost. And, and why would you advertise when there are no products to sell? No. Nah, when they had bananas um, in East Germany, um, that didn't happen too often. Um, it was basically word of mouth. Um, oh, they've got bananas. Let's just go and basically empty the shop because it was such a rarity. Actually, what they made us do at the time as West Germans visiting, we had to exchange 40 West marks into 40 East marks. Exchange rate one on one. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, the East, East Mark was basically worthless. Um, the actual exchange rate would have probably been one for 10 or one for 20, something like that. Mm. But they needed the hard currency, of course, the regime. So they made you change it. And so we were left with these East Marks for our family, you know, trying to figure out what to do. It was really hard. Mm. But um, the, the only thing we found actually at the time was vanilla shorts, probably from Cuba, <laughs> because they traded with all their communist-friendly countries but nothing else in the shops you really wanted to buy. You didn't buy a Trabant to bring home and keep? Well, the thing um, was actually I would have had to wait probably for 10 years because yeah. that was the other thing. If you wanted to have a telephone connection or a car or anything like that, you had to register your interest and then you had to wait 10 or 15 years. And the despair. Yeah, and also the back to the fear, actually. This knowledge, of course, that there is the Stasi constantly looking over you and keeping a, a record on you. Um, I can tell you another funny anecdote. Actually, my dad was a policeman in West Germany. They um, had training um, for police officers in a West German city called Münster. And for that, they got um, police officers from the whole country together, including West Berlin. And West Berlin, of course, was part of the Federal Republic, so part of the Free West. But to get to that seminar, the West German police officer had to travel through East Germany on a transit route. There were three transit routes that West Berliners and mm -hmm. West Germans were allowed to use to get them through the territory of East Germany. So anyway, he um, attended the course in West Germany. He set his final exam on a Friday. And then on Friday afternoon, he went to travel home back to um, West Berlin through East German territory. So he arrives at the German-German border. And the border guard looks at his passport and says, oh, so you turned that police training course. Yes. Congratulations, you passed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, dear, dear. But you know what? It's um, it's a nice story again, because the Stasi was everywhere, not just in East Germany, when, but of course in West Germany as well. So 1975, 10, you were 14 or so when the ball came down. Yep. Was Ronald Reagan's speech significant to a West German? 
It was. Um, it was highly emotional, of course, but frankly, when he delivered it, and it was about a year before the wall actually fell, Mr. Gorbachev opened this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We all thought, well, he's crazy. What is he talking yeah. about? Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. permanent. This is here forever, and this will never go away. It's, it's very nice that Ronald Reagan talks about this, but nobody thought he was realistic. No, same. And uh, we just thought it was a bit of political rhetoric. And um, it's fantastic rhetoric, great speech. Fantastic rhetoric. And what an what an amazing president in hindsight, hugely underrated at the time. Mm-hmm. And um no, I just it was that speech I can recall that speech and thinking, oh yeah, that's good for everyone at home in America, and you know, um nothing's nothing's going to change because that wall was such a physical manifestation. It was so permanent. The guards, the guns, the dogs, the security, uh, terrifying. And as you say, what an experiment. One country, one point of time, divided in half, two systems. One, broadly capitalist. One, savagely communist. I mean, they did have prices, but savagely um, following the model. And yet, everywhere you go, capitalism bad, socialism good. Well, hey, we've had unless that ex- you go up in Germany. And yeah. by the way, I, I must say, these experiences we make in our teens are absolutely shaping us for life. I, yes. I read about it um, a lot. No matter where you grow up, whatever shapes you in your teens and maybe early twins, that is basically you for the rest of your life. You cannot really escape from that. In my case, that was shaped by the fall of the wall. That was shaped by the rise of globalization, by this whole atmosphere that led Fukuyama to claim that this is the end of history and we've reached the final stage. Mm. So this basically is my mindset. And then I happened to study economics at around the same time, too. So you can kind of imagine where I'm coming from, quite literally. Mm. Well, when that wall came down, I wondered what I was going to do with the rest of my life, because by then I had become like you, a classical liberal, and I thought, "Oh, we're there, right?" Mm-hmm. And it was like the end of wonderful history. times. Yeah, the end of history, and we had it had. By the a, way, I didn't believe it. I didn't really believe the end of history. I must say. Yeah. Well, you see, I sort of did. Not the end of history, but I thought it was just going to be. We were heading into the sunny uplands of peace and prosperity. Yes, no, I op- felt optimistic. I felt totally yeah. optimistic, but I didn't quite buy it that this was really the end because, I mean, as we know, history always continues. Well, and you're German, so you have a long history. We New Zealanders have a short history, and we we don't have a a, a, a great sense of... But you know what? I mean, to, to be German, of course, it's a bit, bit of a mixed bag when you think of your history. There are some... Really impressive things about German history, um, and I think the most impressive one actually being the fall of the wall and a peaceful revolution for freedom. Yes. But I mean, we don't have to talk about the negative bits. We've got plenty of them and plenty of things to be ashamed of. So um, yeah, when, when you know history, um, you know. But you see, I'm serious about this, Oliver. You shouldn't be ashamed. I hate this guilt of your ancestors. Um, you've done nothing wrong. Uh, no it's German. Not a, it's not a personal shame. No, well, you shouldn't even feel shame. Uh, I'm serious about this. You're no more responsible for what happened in the past than I am for that what is happened true. in your past. But we are and, responsible for ensuring that it never happens again. 
Sure, but we all are. Yes, but that's another thing, actually. I think that you take from your upbringing. You, you know about your country's history and you know what to avoid, what to fight for, what to cherish. Yes, no, indeed. Um, tell me, Oliver Hartwich doesn't sound a very German name. But it is. Really? Yes. Hartwig is a very common name, actually, in Germany. Typically spelled, I would say, in 80% of the cases with a G at the end instead of a CH. Okay. And Oliver, actually, in the 1960s and 70s, was the most popular voice name in Germany, believe it or not. Goodness me. And that's a German name? O Oliver clearly is not German. Uh, that was imported from England. Okay. But um, Hartwig is certain. Oh, Hartwig, by the way. I'm, I mean, I've got Hartwig, all sorts okay. of pronunciations in England and New Zealand um, of my name. I got used to all of them now, so I respond to all of these different versions. But it's actually Hartwig. It's this CH sound that only seems to exist in the German language. Mm. Now, let's go to this, because the war came down in 1989. Um, very, very significant. We'd had the 80s. We would had Ronald Reagan, um, Margaret Thatcher. We'd had Roger Douglas and David Longy. And a new generation uh was taking over uh and looking forward to a free world free markets peace uh the ussr fell to bits and we were complaining because it wasn't going fast enough and then we come to your article and it's an astonishing article, Oliver, and I want to commend you for it because it's a big picture piece and it's a hard article for people to read, I think, because it's highly critical and nonpartisan. And I think the difficulty that we've got with our politics here and around the world is that our criticism of government policy is partisan. And what you're pointing out here is that the slide is systemic. And you're not identifying why we've had that slide, but you're giving examples of the slide. And the example that you give is housing which is a good one. The most obvious it's, one, I thought. It's an obvious one. And let me just say this. So when I was a kid, you could leave school at 15, drive a truck or get an apprenticeship, get married, put a deposit down and buy a house, have children, and within 30 years, you'd own your own home and be comfortable. And you'd be doing that on a single wage. So that's in my lifetime. That was just, in fact, growing up, I thought, how boring, right? That is a dream. That was God's own. That was the God's own of which you speak. The half-gallon half quarter-acre Pavlova paradise where Every man and his wife could own their quarter-acre section and have their kids running around the backyard. That now is an impossible dream for our young people 
unless they've got a mum and dad with money or property. Yes, and that is a social scandal because social scandal. I don't generally like the word social justice uh, for reasons of course you not understand. Yeah. But if there's ever a thing, an incident of social injustice, is it is this. Yes. Because we have a whole generation now that is collectively poorer than their parents because they cannot reasonably aspire to home ownership in the way that their parents did. No. And as I point out in the article, it is entirely self-inflicted. And well, by let's, the way, just, let's just stop on there. We're going to get to that. Yeah. So this this lack of home ownership, the ramifications of that are everywhere. Yes. Right? Because obviously there's a whole lot of things going on in terms of young men and young women not getting married and having a family. But one of them is the inability to have their own home. And it is also a huge political and economic ramification because we have a great swath of New Zealanders who have no economic stake or political stake in the country. They, the, historically, you'd get a mortgage and you'd become well, more conservative, more stable, um, more rooted, more grounded, uh, more responsible, all those things of being an adult. And we look at it now, and we've got 30-year-olds living with mum and dad, having a succession of boyfriends and girlfriends, um, maybe having children, maybe not, changing jobs. No stability or commitment and no political stability and commitment. So this shock, oh, and then looking across and seeing a classmate whose parents owned a house and therefore, or two houses, and therefore they're on the property ladder. This is a huge political and economic division. Yes, and that's not the only negative effect. It also limits the ability of New Zealanders to move to where the best jobs are, because you might be locked into a place and you can't afford something else. Yes. It um, delays family formation, as you mentioned. It cements um, inequalities in society, also, as you mentioned. And it also limits the choice, for example, of schools, because as long as we've got school zoning and the best schools have the highest property prices next to them, well, guess what? Um, we're locking people away from the best schools. And so not only that they are poor, but they also can't afford to move to a place where their children might actually get a better education that would get them out of that cycle. Mm. So an unaffordable housing market has all sorts of negative implications and, for society. And we've created the equivalent of a landed gentry. Yes. We've also made our whole economy dependent on property prices. Yeah. So the yeah. development of the economy is correlated <laughs> very closely with um, property prices. So if property prices go up, we feel richer, we probably borrow a bit more against the value of our property, release some value and spend it. And if um, property prices fall, then the whole economy is in trouble because people might be negative at equity, they might be missing out on mortgage payments consumption goes down. So the whole economy swings and sways with the property market. It's not very healthy. And it's not from an economics perspective 
the place that you want people to be investing like it's a business? Yes. Um, I've heard that so many times. Oh, we don't really have that much in retirement savings, but we're saving in bricks and mortar, meaning um, we've got a massive mortgage. So yeah. actually, I thought, no, sorry, but that's not saving. That's actually debt. And when you look at the total amount of private debt in this country, I mean, government debt is still comparatively low compared to other developed countries, but private debt, jeepers, it's it's a real concern for New Zealand. And of course, people like me, economists, we've been saying this for over 20 years, and of course, we're the fools, because people have made more money out of investing in housing than they have working. Yeah, because as an economist, you can't say when this will end, but you can be pretty sure that at some stage it will collapse. Yes. So let's go back now. That's that's this huge drama because it's not just house prices. It's, you know, having the kids still with you. You can't kick them out. It's it's kids not being born. It's families not forming. It's, it's people not growing up um, and being politically and economically responsible. Uh, all this is happening. It's creating a huge division in society. How come in, in the 1960s, a working man on a single wage with a wife and three kids could afford a house in a new subdivision? And in 2023, wouldn't even bother looking. What's happened? Well, I think there are many reasons for the decline in housing affordability. Um, maybe to start with a non-economic reason first. I think we had a change in culture. So back in the 1960s, there was still an attitude in New Zealand quite widespread that you know problems are there to be solved and development is something good and economic growth is something to strive for. I think what's happened in the last few decades is actually that we have developed an anti-growth mentality. We don't like growth. We see problems everywhere. And actually, one of my colleagues here at the initiative, uh, Matthew Birchwell, historian, is just uh, finalizing a report on the history of infrastructure development in New Zealand, and he's documented that quite nicely. So uh, just to give you one example, that's has nothing to do with housing, the Auckland Harbour Bridge. I mean, that was an achievement that was celebrated with a public holiday when it was completed. They composed mm. a song to celebrate the Auckland Harbour Bridge, and they were really celebrating progress in a way that we don't do anymore. So I actually think that um, once upon a time, you know, whether it was the first walker arriving or the European settlers, they looked at a country where there wasn't much infrastructure <laughs> because they yeah. were new. But they didn't turn around and say, oh, this is so terrible, let's go home to where we came from because we can't make this work. No, they actually arrived on these shores and they get, got cracking. They got stuff done. And, and they saw that there was, for example, in Wellington, this mountain range. And, oh, maybe there are some planes behind that. And, oh, let's build a tunnel. And then they built a railway tunnel through the Remotaka. Nowadays, can you imagine? Oh, God, we probably find an endangered frog species somewhere. And yeah. then we have to deal with a community. And it's costly. And then there are planning delays. And climate change. And safety and climate change and whatever. And in the end, oh, it's, it's probably too hard. And if it happens, then it might take 20 or 30 years in planning stuff. And then... The implementation will be botched and um, nothing will work. And nobody seems to care that much anymore. Whereas I think in previous generations, there was much more of a can-do spirit. And, you know, there's an obstacle, whether it's a mountain range or a harbor or whatever, let's just cross that. Let's deal with that. Let's build it. Let's move this country forward. So I think this first thing is actually a shift in culture. 
Is that a Kiwi thing or across the West? That is not a Kiwi thing in particular. I see exactly the same development in Germany. Um, when in Germany, they try to build railway stations and have found some endangered beetle species. I'm not making it up, by the way. And this whole project, which was more than a billion euros, got delayed in Stuttgart. Uh, I'm talking about Stuttgart Simple Station. And in Australia, you find that as well. I mean, talk to Nick Cater. Nick Cater wrote a wonderful book about it almost a decade ago called The Lucky Culture, in which Nick explains that Australia once got stuff done. They built hydro dams, they built all sorts of infrastructure projects, and nowadays it seems inconceivable because of all the naysayers and all the concerns and all the regulations. So New Zealand is not alone in this respect, but I think it plays a massive role. So culture. But on top of that, and probably linked to that, we have some other developments in this country which are really holding us back. So we are following the British tradition of town planning. And actually, my first job in Think Tankland was almost 20 years ago in London, actually working on the British Town and Country Planning Act. Same kind of development copied here. So it's plan-led development. We have effectively nationalized property rights of landowners. We've put planners in charge. So you might nominally own the land, but actually that doesn't mean you can, can do with it whatever you like. You are always dependent on a planner. In Britain, it's the Town and Country Planning Act. In New Zealand, we call this the Resource Management Act. It comes down to the same property owners are effectively expropriated. And we have a nationalization of development rights. And then you put a planning class in charge of it. And the planning class um, has been trained in all sorts of things, but not economics. And so they plan whatever they think is right. And then we get weird things, for example, like needs tests, where planners then try to do, decide whether a new supermarket, for example, is needed, mm. as if we could leave this to the market. Mm. And on top of that in New Zealand, I think we have something else, which also plays a role, by the way, in Britain. By the way, just pick up on yeah. that. This, yeah. is, this is something we can gloss over without seeing the stupidity of it. But you have planners, and I recall an instance in Auckland where I think it was 10 years, where they were arguing over whether a supermarket was needed. Ikea, yes. Yeah. Ikea, was it? It was and, Ikea, and I remember the case because it ended up in the environmental court. Yeah. And the court, believe it or not, decided that Ikea should not be allowed to open because it would be so popular that it would cause traffic chaos. So <laughs> as, an economist, be, as an economist, you look at this and say, oh, hang on, this is a supermarket that you think will be successful because people will want it, and they will want it so much that they are willing to queue in the in the streets and go into a traffic jam just to shop at IKEA. And because of that, because people really want it, we won't let this happen. Crazy, and yeah. Totally. And and this is this craziness that needs to be constantly thumped along. Like it won't. Oh, we're not sure whether we need a supermarket. And you're looking at it and you're thinking. Why would a supermarket business build a supermarket that wasn't needed? And there's a kid with a geography degree writing planning reports with no no capital at risk, no ability to build something, mm -hmm. stopping it. And, and at the same time, of course, we have politicians and planners complain about cost of living. Yeah. So they say, oh, this is terrible. There's not enough competition in, in the supermarket sector or in, in furniture retailing. But then when somebody wants to enter the market, you say, well, actually, no, sorry, you, you would cost too much traffic. Then you have consultation. Yes. 
you have so, so the whole we, thing is very bureaucratic. We know that. I mean, anyone who's ever tried to get a building permission or planning consent um, knows how bureaucratic the whole system is. But there's one thing on top of that, and I think that is almost as important, and that is the lack of financial incentives for councils to actually approve development. What I mean by that is if you think about the development from a council's perspective, what does it mean? It means, okay, you first have to deal with the NIMBYs, the NIMBYs who don't like development in their backyard. You have to also deal with the bananas, you know, that build absolutely nothing anywhere near any one faction, big part of society in New Zealand. Then on top of that, you have to, of course, pay for the roads, for the infrastructure. You might have to build a new library, you have to build a new park or a new playground. All of this is costly. So you bear the political costs of dealing with people who don't like development. You then have to build extra infrastructure. You also have to explain to your local population that you're adding more pressure on public services with these newcomers. So all of this is costly politically and financially. The new taxes generated out of the development when it happens the taxes, for example, in GST, the taxes from income tax from the new residents, the taxes in corporate tax from the companies that built the thing, they end up in Wellington. So we've got two tiers of government in New Zealand. One tier bears the cost of development. The other one gets the upside and the revenue of development. And then we're surprised that these tiers don't see eye to eye. And then we're surprised that councils don't like development. So first, we give them the tools in the Resource Management Act to really make it hard. And then we give them zero incentive to work around these development obstacles from the IMA. And then we're surprised that nothing happens. So I think it's a complete experiment, again, in self-sabotage. This country would have had the opportunity to build because we are not short of land. I point this out in my column. For every man, woman and child in New Zealand, we have 42,500 square meters of land on average. And even if you include all sheep in the country, you would still get to close to 10,000 square meters per capita. So really, we are not running out of land. We are just not making it possible to build because we have made it bureaucratic. We have expropriated property owners. And we have also failed to provide incentives to councils to actually make this development happen. Are we surprised we have a housing market as unaffordable as it is? Mm. I'm, uh, I recall being in Australia and traveling across a desert listening to the radio and there was a serious discussion going on on the radio about how australia was running out of landfill space mm-hmm. australia mm-hmm. australia yeah yeah sure <laughs> it's a small biggest... island continent <laughs> <laughs> and you're listening to this and you're thinking i can't believe this but we we confront a similar thing, don't we? We're sort of this constant um, propaganda of running out of something until we we believe it. You know, we've run out of land, or there's no space, or you know, we can't do this. You're, you're running out of land. I think it was Milton Friedman saying that if you put socialists in charge of the Sahara Desert, you would soon run out of sand. Yes. So it's a bit like that. And by the way, you mentioned Australia as a place where they think they're running out of land. I mean, in Britain, of course, I heard the same. And what I found interesting was in Britain, they used 8% of the country for development. And that included even urban parkland. So even in Britain, which is vastly more densely populated than New Zealand, um, it was only 8%. And the New Zealand figure is about 1% of the country used for development. Now I mentioned if we... 
increased the total amount of developed land in New Zealand by 50%. That would be 0.5% of New Zealand. So not much really, but it would no. make all the difference for people who can't afford their homes. Because as we know, the bulk of the price of a new home or um, an existing home is in the land, not in the bricks and mortar. So you have a think tank. You're an economist. You've got economists there. You can see it. I can see it. People listening can see it. We have politicians and local bodies and central government who get elected and they've got to win our vote. And they do that by providing what we want, which in this case we're talking housing, but it could be, you and I agree, it could be any one of a million things that have gone wrong. We have a bureaucracy which is cleverer and smarter and got computers and God knows what, like they never had back when they were building the Auckland Harbour Bridge originally. Can they see it? Well, it would take a certain degree of blindness not to see it. But uh, we have to ask ourselves, well, if it's so obvious to see, why do we still get these outcomes? And I think that really takes us to the question of incentives. Mm -hmm. If you incentivize councils not to build because it is not in their best interest to build, because it is costly, it takes time, it risks your re-election as a councillor or mayor if you are too ambitious in building plans, well, then guess what? It won't happen. So I think it's really down to the incentives that control our behavior in the housing market. And then, of course, what you do, if you run this system for a long enough time, you also build expectations. And the expectation then is that an investment in property will always be good in the long run because the market is so tight, you will make a decent return on your investment. And so you build an expectation of future house price increases into the system, and that makes it even more enticing for people to buy doesn't make it more enticing for councillors to so, build or plan, but it does make it enticing to buy into the property market. So one improvement, and this is a good thing for listeners too, is that economists don't think in terms of solutions, which is what captures oftentimes non-economists, that it's natural to try and figure out a solution to a problem Whereas an economist tends to look at trade-offs and look at improvements. Oh, I, I think I have a solution for you. Oh, you have a solution? No, well, let's go to that. If you have an improvement slash solution, let's hear it. Perhaps I'm an unusual economist, but I think I've got a solution. Mm -hmm. So um, we should learn from does it involve uh, Does it involve sort of being Guy Fawkes and blowing up Parliament or something exciting like that? Well, I'm a classical liberal, but not an anarchist. Okay. And um, the only similarity between Guy Fawkes and me is that we're both Catholic. Right. So um, my solution, learn from countries that have actually managed to keep their housing market stable. In particular, I'm thinking of two countries that I know quite well. The one country is Germany, the other one is Switzerland. In both cases, actually, what happens is that councils that go for development can retain some of the extra tax revenue generated. And they can use that tax revenue to fund the infrastructure and also tell existing residents that development is a good story. Whereas currently in New Zealand, of course, as I explained before, 
It is the opposite. We're leaving the councils and local communities with a cost. We are not compensating them for development. We're not compensating them for the loss of amenity and therefore nothing gets done. So why don't we learn a lesson or two from say the Swiss where councils have a local income tax where they can keep some of the revenue from new development, from new residents and therefore development once again becomes a positive story where councils are in favor of growth because it pays for them rather as in New Zealand where growth is a net cost and it doesn't pay and you try to avoid it at all costs. And how does it work here? How would that work here? Well, um, there are many ways in which you could implement this. The simplest way would be to say, as the Act Party does, we take the GST from new development and we take that revenue and pass it on to councils and leave it to them and to fund the infrastructure with that revenue. That would be a relatively straightforward thing because you can calculate quite easily how much GST is generated out of a new build. You can also do more complicated versions. You could actually start to perhaps take a share of GSD generated locally, or you could actually measure how much um, extra tax revenue is generated out of a local economy, that growth, and you can take some of that and actually pass it back down to councils. You could have a wholesale tax reform. You could introduce local income taxes as they have in Switzerland. There are many ways in which you could do this. The most important thing is at the end of it, there should be a financial incentive for councils to go for development, because otherwise, they will use every tool in the toolbox, which is the IMA, to block development because it's not in their interest. So let's say I'm Auckland Council and I allow a little subdivision to go ahead. Well, mate, let's make it a reasonably sized subdivision to go ahead and it'll be 100 houses, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, what does the council get out of those 100 houses? At the moment, it gets nothing. It just gets a whole lot of headaches That's because right. the neighbours complain. They got to do the roads up. They got to provide sewage, water. Um, they've got more people bitching and whining. Where's our school? All the rest of it. But uh, what you're saying is we can incentivize a council to allow a subdivision with those hundred houses. So if those hundred houses go ahead, let's take the Act policy. If those 100 houses go ahead, what does the council get? Well, it depends on what the houses cost, of course. Well, let's say they're a million each. Well, okay. Then it's 100 times a million, and 15% of that would go to the council. 50 million? That is a massive chunk of money. 50 million? 15 million, yes. Wow. 15% of the... Oh, one five. One five. One five. five. I got 15. No, no, the GST. Yep. Basically, you take the GST, you earmark the GST, and you pass the 15% back to council. It would change the behavior of councils. And I can tell you because I have done the research. Um, yep. That was my first think tank project in London for policy exchange almost 20 years ago. And I traveled around Germany and Switzerland, and I talked to mayors, and I talked to councillors, and I tried to figure out how things work there. Because if you look at it on paper, these two countries look like not too dissimilar from Britain because they also have planning rules. They have of course, yeah, plans, yeah, yeah. they have building codes, they have all the kind of legislation in place that you would also see in countries like New Zealand or, or Britain or Australia. But what they do have are the incentives. And so in Switzerland, there's a local income tax and in Germany, there is a more complicated scheme. But basically, it means that councils know how much an extra resident is worth to them. And when I talk to councillors and mayors in these two countries, you could see the 
euro signs or the swiss franc signs in their eyes because they could almost calculate down to the last euro cent how much and it would be it would typically be a similar amount like 15% would do it um depends i mean in switzerland of course it really depends on the canton and on the council because each council in switzerland can actually raise its own income tax mm. and it can also set its own income tax rate so there's no general figure it could give you it really varies there are about 2000 different tax regimes in switzerland mm. but it is a substantial enough amount to incentivize councils to go for development where in new zealand that simply wouldn't happen yes and it's your observation that incentives matter even for politicians and more particularly for civil servants that is exactly right and why should it be any different we have known this of course in economics and and you know that as a fellow economist um we've had public choice economics since the 1950s and 60s and that was driven by people like Gordon Tullock and James Buchanan um the idea there is quite simple e- economics previously thought okay once you take an otherwise self-interested individual and put that person into a bureaucracy or into parliament they will suddenly become enlightened and work for the greater common good and then these economists in the 50s and 60s said well hang on um, they're totally self-interested normal individuals human beings in their private capacity as consumers why would they suddenly become angels when they work as bureaucrats or politicians it's not realistic and so what they did was they modeled them more like normal human beings people are people no matter where you put them and suddenly they realized actually once you assume that bureaucrats and politicians are self-interested you can probably explain their behavior a lot better and so for a bureaucrat obviously they would like to get a promotion they would like to get a bigger office in the end they would like to have a bigger budget and so they behave accordingly and a bureaucracy has an inbuilt tendency and desire to grow itself and sustain itself that's not a particularly novel um invention really i mean we've known this actually for centuries i mean there is mm. literature even going back to the 17th and 18th century um documenting that but actually in the 50s and 60s it became part of economics and for politicians of course the incentives are pretty clear i mean you as an ex practitioner in the field you would know that you would like to get reelected mm. and then once you're elected and in parliament you want to be in government and then you try to become a minister outside cabinet and then a cabinet minister and perhaps eventually prime minister so the incentives are relatively clear there too and so whether you do stuff that actually works for the country's real interests ideally that would be nice but actually first and foremost you think about your own career and how you actually remain in the business mm. and so once you actually put that perspective in and you try to model how does that drive political behavior how does that drive bureaucracy's behavior and then as an economist what you try to do is you figure out well can we actually shift the incentives for politicians and bureaucrats in a way that whatever serves their self interest also works for the country because then it would actually be a good thing it's a great point um to bring it home i'm living perched precariously in arrowtown in a rental apartment and there's no housing there's a huge housing crisis in uh queenstown and arrowtown people are crying out for staff uh, i personally know of a dozen people who are working and sleeping in their cars and tents and you can imagine we're freezing every night down here now and these are young people you know who um are tough and they're not hobos they're working but there's nowhere for them to stay 
for no amount of money even. Uh, there was a proposal to put in a large workers' accommodation development in the perfect spot. But it was a little out of Queenstown, and it would mean driving into Queenstown and coming over the Shotover Bridge. And the council refused it because they were worried. <laughs> yeah, God forbid. The reason for opposing it was that people would drive across the bridge and it might get congested. Yeah, yeah. Um, a bit like the Akio story. <laughs> yeah. So um, you're sitting there thinking, well, build a bigger bridge, right? Or do something. Just don't say no. And now the council's running around, of course, all worried about the housing, quote, shortage. And so the council's spending money on emergency accommodation and whatnot, and all the politicians and bureaucrats are, 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 are sort of wrenching their hands what to do, and we care so much, when it's a direct consequence of every decision that they've taken. And what you're saying is if they were able to secure that 15%, they could have done something, get a loan, extend the bridge to the benefit of everyone and look to a winning formula rather than a zero-sum formula, which is they build those houses and then we have to spend more money doing up the bridge. Hang on. If we allow those houses, we will have the money to do up the bridge. Yeah, exactly. It's just one of these examples of how New Zealand self-sabotages. And that was the point behind my column, just pointing out that we do this quite systematically. We need to get a lot better at um, aligning the incentives for bureaucrats and politicians with the common good. Now, here's a question for you, Oliver. You wrote this article. It is. Um, for people who are interested in what Oliver has to say, and you should be, uh, go to the New Zealand Initiative webpage and you'll see their policy papers and their reports and their opinion pieces and you'll see this wonderful article by Oliver from God's Own to the Devil's Playground. And it's this political cultural slide where we tend to see our problems as individual issues, <coughs> not as a a comprehensive systemic problem. And so what Oliver's done here is looked at that and he's given examples rather than saying, here's a particular problem, what do we need to fix it? He's looking at the big big picture. And it's a hard article for a Kiwi to read because we want to be God's own. And we're not, 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 we're a long way for that, particularly for our young people. And this is starting to address it. So please go to the New Zealand Initiative and read that. But here's the thing. Did you submit this to the New Zealand Herald, Oliver? No, I did submit it as my regular column to the Australian newspaper. Would it get would something like this, in your experience, get picked up by the New Zealand Herald? Yes, actually, it does because I have um, occasionally written pieces for the Herald as well, and I don't walk back there either. So, you think that New Zealand is up for this conversation? Well, it should be, because if you care for the future of this country, you need to be honest with yourself. There's no downside to the truth. We have to just face up to the fact that we are not as good as we would like to be or that we as we once were. 
By the I way, love, um, I love your sunny optimism. Well, it would be irresponsible to give in. Um, there's nothing more irresponsible than defeatism. We are here. We have our families here. We want to make this country succeed, and we have to work towards it. We can't just give up and say, look, last person switches off the line, we're back off to Australia. Mm. That, that, that is not a solution. The solution really to New Zealand's problems actually starts with a good and an honest analysis. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to just say things as they are, and we also sometimes have to slaughter a few holy cows along the way. And actually, I wouldn't mind a mass grave for holy cows in New Zealand because there's so many of them. Um, so talk about foreign direct investment. We are really hurting ourselves by having one of the most restrictive foreign direct investment regimes because some people believe that otherwise we become tenants in our own country. This is nonsense. We have to get a lot better when it comes to our education system because it simply doesn't deliver. We have more than 40% of our school leavers leaving school without the ability to properly write or read or calculate. So functional literacy is a massive problem, by the way. It's massively skewed towards the lower deserts. So if you're coming from a disadvantaged background, the chances of you getting a school education that will help you progress in life are even slimmer than for the average New Zealander. We have problems in practically every area of policy. I mean, our infrastructure seems to be a bit of a disaster. I've never seen so many potholes in my life. Um, our health system is falling apart. I recently had the pleasure of visiting an A&E department and I was just shocked by how crowded it was, not just the reception, but once you were in, there were beds basically on the floors everywhere. This country doesn't work anymore. Our ferries are breaking apart, and I think it's now a quarter of the inter-islander ferry journeys being cancelled. We had these slow-go trains in Auckland and Wellington recently, and in Wellington because there's only one car, one, one train car actually, able to measure the tracks, apparently, for the whole country, which really surprised me. So name one area of policy that really still works. We talk about ourselves as the country that is oh, once was God's own. We talk about the number eight wire mentality and we'll somehow make it work and she'll be right. We, we talk about uh, a world-class system where we still believe, oh, it's, okay, there are some problems, but it's kind of world-class because it once was. And we celebrate uh, our great achievements in the past from you know, Edmund Hillary to Ernest Rutherford. So we've got our proud moments in our history, but none of this should detract us from the fact that this country currently doesn't perform, it doesn't work. And for that, I think it requires a degree of honesty just to acknowledge that because without that honesty, you have no chance of reforming. You first of all have to admit you've got a problem. I mean, that's basically how anonymous alcoholics start. They first have to admit that there's mm. a problem. If you don't admit that to yourself, you can't find solutions. And in that sense, I think it is a patriotic duty to now be really honest with the country. It's not rubbishing the country, but just stating the obvious, we've got a problem. And we can all see it. Yes, and there's no denying it, except if you look at recent opinion polls, my impression is that many people out there still don't quite get the severity of the situation. I mean, they're at the moment looking 50% likely to return a government that in my view, hasn't actually delivered on any of its promises. Mm. Are you a practicing Catholic, Oliver? That's a scoop. And I, I ask this genuinely because you have a commitment to truth. And yes. what one of the, I'm finding my way to Christianity and to Catholicism almost because 
I find myself living in a world without values, mm-hmm. and I hate it, and without principles. And I love your commitment to truth, and that's a funny one too, because we find in our school system the idea that you each just have your own truth. Whereas if you're a Christian, you have a belief, but you also believe in a real world. You believe in an objective world. You believe in knowledge. You believe in right and wrong, true and false. And when I'm interviewing you, this comes across very strongly. So to answer your question, yes, I'm a practicing Catholic. Well, good for you, because I think, um, and good for you to owning up to it, because I think that's wonderful. And when I hear your commitment, I hear that strength of value and purpose coming through. And funnily enough, what caught my eye was that God's own to the devil's playground because I'm not getting into the sort of metaphysical, but you sort of do feel that we have lost our way, not just in terms of understanding good policy and distinguishing it from bad policy, but we've lost our way in terms of a commitment to progress, a commitment to truth, a commitment to critique, Um, and we can all just have our own lived experience. So having a hard debate like you're giving is quite, if I may say so, quite jarring these days. It is a problem, I think, in New Zealand, having proper debates because we are lacking a debate culture. Mm. What I mean by that is that we are often self-moderating. And I think it's not a recent phenomenon. That's something that struck me really for the whole time I've been here, which is 11 years now. In other countries in which I have lived, um, there was a greater willingness to confront other people with different ideas. Not in a personal way, not in personal attacks, but just saying where you disagree and just spell Mm. it out. In New Zealand, we try to moderate this away too much. And I've been struck by that, and I've wondered why that is. My best explanation is it's a smaller country. There is a high probability that you will meet again, that you will have friends in common, that um, maybe your brothers uh, went to school with one another, or you know your cousin, and you work together, and you, you always can trace it back, and we know this as the two degrees of separation phenomenon. So you don't want to fall out with people also because you know you're likely to meet again in a different function maybe. So you can't burn your bridges, and that's why you moderate. You never quite say what you really mean. When, a, mm. when, when, when I meet potential members and I say, oh, this sounds exciting and wonderful, and we should talk, I, I know this means no, uh, because we're holding it again too. So there is a problem with that, and I think we need open debates, and I think we need open disagreements, uh, not in a personal way, of course. We have to be polite. We have to be considerate. This is not ad hominem. It is just saying what you mean and really stating your positions quite clearly. I think that's the first thing that we need, and then we can discuss different ideas. And by the way, the other thing I would like to see, I think we should also 
accept that most people, and I really mean 99% of people, even politicians, probably mean well. They probably think that they are doing things that is right, even though um, objectively it might not be. So we should actually give them that. I think we should um, even grant our opponents, it's a very Christian way of thinking about it, grant them um, that they might want to do the right things and then mm. st start to engage with them on on policy issues. I'll give you an example. I think what this current government does and what the Ministry of Education does on education is terribly flawed to the point where I would say it's almost criminal what they're doing with our children at, at, at school. And yet I don't doubt Chris Hipkins, for example, that he cares for education. And actually, I know that he cares for education because he comes from a household. I mean, his mother was a lead researcher in the Council of Education Research. Um, she was one of the architects of the curriculum and the NCA assessment system. And now we can say, okay, none of this works. The curriculum is terrible. The NCA assessment system doesn't work. But that doesn't take away from the fact that actually he comes from a household that cares for education. And Hipkins cares for education. And I've actually met with Hipkins on a few occasions and discussed education with him. And I know that he cares. So no attack on Hipkins for not wanting to do the right thing. Just a debate with him and his party on how do we get there. I actually think that there is no party in Parliament that wants to see unaffordable housing. Of course, they want to see affordable housing. We have to recognize that there are incentives that keep them from achieving that goal. And they probably also have some weird ideas, some of the parties on, uh, that don't work from an economics perspective, but I would grant them um, the goodwill. I think. Well, how, how wonderful is that? And you're a, a, a role model for me because you've, you choose the hard path. And I often now find myself choosing the lazy path, and which is to just dismiss the whole show and in frustration. Whereas you're prepared to grant and see the best in people and to work with that and to present your arguments. And I was going to say with the missionary zeal, because it is a sort of missionary thing that we have to do. Because yeah. you keep going and you keep going and you keep going because what is the alternative? And you are building up a body of work and a body of understanding which will stand the test of time and eventually that Berlin Wall does come down. Yes. And if, well, you mentioned the missionary zeal. There is a nice parallel, actually, in early Christian history, and that's St. Paul. So St. Paul traveled, of course, around um, the Eastern Mediterranean and tried to uh, spread spread the word and the belief. And he encountered some communities, of course, where they had loads of gods. And they always had one statue dedicated to the unknown god because they were terrified that they might miss one. <laughs> in, in all their worship. And so they had one for the unknown God, just in case we missed someone. And St. Paul turned up to these communities and says, well, that's mine. <laughs> and the <laughs> wonderful thing, that. <laughs> But the wonderful thing here is actually, there's a principle in that. You try to find out what people really care for. And then you try to explain to them that actually the solutions that you might have would probably work for them too. So for example, when it comes to housing, 
we know that people on the kind of green side of politics care for environmental features in housing. They want to see everything properly insulated, energy efficient, maybe with a solar roof on top. That's what they care for. Well, if you care for affordable housing, you could actually argue your case to someone from that part of politics saying, look, I know you care for all of these environmental features, but have you ever thought about this way? If you are a first time buyer, you're trying to get your first home, the housing market is really tight, everything is ridiculously unaffordable, you wouldn't even think of environmental features. Your first and probably your only priority is to ensure that you're somehow able to afford that first house. And then everything else comes afterwards. Whereas in my world, in which housing would be generally more affordable, even first-time buyers could think about environmental features, mm. about efficiency features, mm. maybe even about decent architecture. So you try to get people from where they are, what they care for, and you try to find a common ground with them. And that's how you're building coalitions. And by the way, you say it might be a Christian way of thinking about it and to always assume the best. I think it's also something that results from psychology. Not sure if you've ever come across Jonathan Hyde. Yes, indeed. Yes, that's basically the story from The Righteous Mind. Why, yes. good, why good people are divided on politics and religion. That was the subtitle of this book. It's a wonderful book that I recommend to yes. all your listeners. Because what he actually points out is actually he's had his own journey from the American left to the American center, maybe center right. And he documents, on based on his research as a psychologist, that actually people typically believe um, they're doing the right thing. They people typically believe their own positions. We've got our own mental and psychological biases, and we have to overcome them. Mm. And um, Hyde actually has one example in his book of a convicted murderer who still argues after being convicted of murder that actually he was only trying to do the right things, and he, he didn't find himself guilty. And Hyde actually argues in this book then if even a convicted murderer still tries to justify his own behavior, what will we do? I mean, we haven't murdered people, typically. We're doing all sorts of things that might not be quite correct, but we always have the inner lawyer justifying our actions. Mm. And Hyde actually points out what you should do is actually you should find your own flaws, you should find your opponent's strengths, and you should try to find common ground, and you need to challenge. And in only in, if we're doing that, where we overcome the polarization in society, which is starting in New Zealand, which is much more progressed in the United States and other parts of the world. But I would rather like us to get back to a position where we can talk to one another again and try to find better solutions for the future of this country. Well, that's a wonderful place to end it, Oliver. You have given us a tour de force on policy and economics and the housing market, but also that system systemic change that has occurred in New Zealand and we tend to look back at the what it was like and see the symptoms now without necessarily seeing the cause. And then you've also done for us, uh, given us a good Christian look at it, where we improve ourselves, we look for the best in others, and we engage in critical dialogue rather than divisive uh, attack and dis dismissal. All of that is should be music to our ears, Oliver, because it gives us hope and optimism. And uh, that's 
how I feel. That's what I need because it's very easy to get dismal. So I appreciate it because I feel perked up. Um, I would love you to come back, Oliver, and share with us more. We've got a big listenership. And it's fair to say that our listenership have become very disillusioned with where New Zealand is heading. We're often confused. I'm speaking for myself about what has happened. We find it hard at times to understand what people are thinking, that they would do this, for example, to our kids in education why they would be teaching what they're teaching, and we tend to think the worst. So you've given us a good message, and I hope you'll come back and be on our show again. I'm very happy to come back. I'm very happy to give you more hope, and I just hope that um, we might have encouraged a few listeners to think a bit differently about politics. Um, Don't go down the path of just being angry because it's so easy. But yes. try to be angry more constructively. Yeah, well, I'm... And, and try to have debates more constructively. Try to disagree more constructively. I'm in the angry phase, but you're helping me. You're shifting me. I have been speaking this morning with the wonderful Oliver Hart, which I think that was a tonic for me, and I hope for you, because it's very easy to look at it and think, oh, everything's so bad, it's so terrible, and there's someone trying to be reasonable. How stupid is that? Because the people that we're dealing with, none of them are reasonable. And yet what is our alternative? And what will succeed most likely? And it's well to remember, as you look across history, at the things that do change that you think could never change. And there's no greater example than that horrid, evil wall that divided not just the people, but families, and kept a people trapped, imprisoned at the point of a gun. And then one day, it came down. And if something like that, something so fundamental, so powerful, with such force behind it, could just come down, anything is possible. And that's why Oliver Hartwich, the New Zealand Initiative, that are free to think, they're a think tank, free to offer up ideas, are so important just now. And I I, I stress, do go to their webpage, and if there's a particular area that interests you, look into it, because you'll find a sober analysis And also you'll find a factual discussion of the issue at hand, just like we had uh, on the housing housing market as an example. You're with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Reality Check Radio. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.